I want to continue um, the Big Steps series that I started with you about two, three weeks ago. If you'd like to find Mark chapter 8, if you want to follow this in a real Bible or your uh, smart device. And uh, last time I started this series, um, Big Steps, by looking at Big Step number one and Big Step number two, and we did so from John chapter 3 and the story of Nicodemus. And we're going to be picking up on Nicodemus again a little bit later in this message. Um, but we looked at, at believing in God and being born again as the first two big steps. And I shared some of my own personal journey with you that day as well, how I walked into a church as a 19-year-old. I walked in as an atheist and I walked out as a believer in Jesus um, and, and following him. So I became a believer and born again um, at that stage in my life. You know, the Christian life is not just about making a decision. And I love it people making a decision for Jesus, and we give people an opportunity in all of our services to decide for Jesus. At the end of this message today, I'm going to give people an opportunity to decide to follow Jesus, and so get ready for that uh, if you haven't already made that decision. But, but the Christian life is not just about one decision. It's about lots of decisions. It's about lots of steps, big steps and small steps. And it's not just a decision and then like, you know, I've ticked that one off my list. I've become a Christian. Now I just go back to my life as it always was. It's, it's much more than that. It's not just about believing in God. It's not just about being born again. It's about becoming a disciple. And that's what I want to share with you today. Big step number three is becoming a disciple. And so let's have a look at, uh, at Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 34 to 38. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Then he called the crowd. I want you to say that those two words, the crowd. The crowd. To him along with his disciples. Say his disciples. His disciples. I want you to notice those two statements there. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And he said to these two groups, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with His holy angels." Now, I pointed out those two lots of two words to you for a specific reason. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples, which means that there's a difference. There are some people that just form the crowd. The crowd are often people that have taken big step one and sometimes big step one and big step two. Uh, the crowd are often believers in God. Many of the crowd are, are often people who have been born again. But there's obviously another step that has to be taken here because Mark differentiates between the crowd and Jesus' disciples. There are, uh, sometimes you can go to a big church and you go, oh, wow, look at, all, look, look at the crowd. But wouldn't it be interesting to know how many people in the crowd have also made the third big step, and that is to become a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? The Greek word here is very interesting, and it is mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, mathetes, where we get our English word mathematics or maths from. Uh, it means to apply yourself 
to study, learning, and knowledge. Now, I am not great at maths. I have many uh, talents, I have many skills, but maths is not one of them. And I would like to say that I have passed on that lack of ability to my three children, who are also terrible at maths. I used to hate maths at school. And isn't it bizarre, all these years later, that I can still remember Pythagoras' theorem. Anyone here um, used to learn all the theorems? Do we still do that? Do we teach theorems? We still teach theorems. Seriously, how tragic. Pythagoras' theorem. I have never used it since I was in high school, but I can still remember it. The square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. I actually still don't know what it means. I just learned it. And uh, I'm sure some of you know it and you use it um, in your everyday life. Maybe you teach it to other people. Um, and then there's algebra. Algebra. Why? Algebra. I could never work out how y to the power of 4, x to the power of 2, plus 2xy, minus y, equaled 12. It never made sense to me. I asked my algebra teacher one day when I was at school, when am I ever going to use this? And she said, you probably won't, but some of the smart kids will. <laughs> she then taught me how to draw a graph, and I said, no, that's where I draw the line. Tish, boom. But Jesus here encourages people to become his mathetes, his mathematicians, as it were, that in following him, we would apply ourselves to study, learning, and knowledge. And so with that background in mind, a disciple is someone who uses their mental effort to think things through, to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who applies themselves to study, learning, and knowledge of the Scriptures and the lifestyle that they require. And that's so important, that last part, because it's not just about diligently studying the Word of God, as important as that is. But you don't want to study and study and study and know it all up here and not live it in our everyday lives. I've met lots of people over the years who are incredibly knowledgeable of the Scriptures, but then they're argumentative and, um, and proud and angry and all of these things. I think, okay, so you know the Bible well, but you actually don't live it in your everyday life. There are lots of people like that on Facebook, and I experience some of those people on a semi-regular basis. They can argue the point. They can run rings around most people, but they're not gracious and kind uh, in their actions and their attitudes. And so a disciple is someone who thinks things through, who applies themselves to studying the Word of God, to knowing what the Word says, but they go a step further than that. They actually personally apply it in their own life. They incarnate the Word like Jesus was the incarnation of the Word. He was the Word made flesh so that looking at the life of Jesus, people would know what God is really like. And that's what He wants for the disciples of Jesus, that when people look at us, they look at our lives, the way that we treat them, love your neighbor as yourself, treating others in the way that you would personally like to be treated. When they experience you, they know what God is like because you're a disciple that you are fleshing out the Word of God in everyday life, counting the cost, counting the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus.
that you look at it. So you've made big step one, you believe in God, you've made big step two, you've been born again, but now I want to become a disciple. What, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What is the cost I have to pay? And is it worth it? And the disciple asks themselves these questions and they come up with the answer, yes, it is. Look at Luke chapter 14 with me. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Large crowds, it starts with. Now, whenever you see those two words in Scripture, invariably, some tough teaching is about to follow. Large crowds, because Jesus would regularly sort the crowd out. He wasn't just interested in crowds of people following him. He wanted those people who had who'd been uh, their believers in God and they were born again, but he wanted the crowd to, to count the cost. He wanted them to think it through. And so he challenges them. And variably at different times, uh, when Jesus gives some of this tough teaching, the crowds actually started to walk away. On one occasion in John 6, Jesus gave some particularly tough teaching and the crowd left. How would we feel? We're speaking. So, oh, sorry, sorry, no, a bit harsh. Come back. You know, let's water it down a bit, shall we? Let's make it a little bit easier. Let's, let's just walk into this. No, no, no. Jesus is like, oh, okay. So he turns to his uh, disciples. He said, you're going to go too? And Peter gives the most pathetic reason. He goes, well, what is our option, <laughs> basically? Oh, you've got the words of eternal life, Jesus. Nobody else has. Where would we go? And so they stuck around. And so here we see the words large crowd and what follows is some tough teaching. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he tells two stories, two parables. Number one, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Remember that Jesus is talking to an Eastern culture here where honor and shame are the most important things. And so if someone started to build a tower, but they didn't have the money to finish it, then they would feel ashamed rather than honored. And so when he's telling this story, people are going, oh, this would be awful. This would be terrible. I need to count the cost. I need to make sure I've got the money to finish. Parable number two, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Tough words. You can imagine people hearing this going, whoa, big cost, too big, walk away. And some of them would have done. Others would go, yeah, it's worth it. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. Let's have a look at this. Because three times in these verses, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? Well, you cannot be my disciple, number one, if you love your family more than you love Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. We read that and we go, hang on, I thought we were supposed to love ourselves, love others like we love ourselves. I thought we were supposed to love our husband, love our wife, love our kids, love our family. Well, the word hate here is not a great translation. When you, when you look at this in the original language in the Greek, it literally means to love less. And so what Jesus here is talking about is perspective. He said, your, your love for me um, has got to be so great and so preeminent that every other love looks like hate. And so we're not to hate our father and our mother. We're not to hate our wife and children. We're not to hate our brothers and sisters. We're not to hate our own life. But if we're to be our disciple, we need to love ourselves and our family less than we love Jesus. So important. In other words, Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one. I, I, I'm amazed at the number of people that I have spoken to over the years, even people that were formerly members of Bayside who have made choices um, because of love of family that have not necessarily been the wisest of choice. Their love of family has been greater than their love of Jesus. If we were to do that, we would not be here. We would not be here. My family are all in Western Australia. Christy's family are all in Northern Ireland. You know, there's been different times we thought, wow, as Christy's parents get older, should we be living over there? Should we be helping them? Um, but, but we come back to this all the time. We believe in the call of God uh, to the Bayside area of Melbourne and the vision that God has given us, and, and we just lock back in with that again because our love for Him is greater than our love for family. And so we make that choice. Is it hard? Yes, it is. But we love Him and we are His disciples. Number two, you cannot be Jesus' disciple if you're not prepared to suffer hardship. He says here, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's talking here about the cost of following what a, a suffering saviour. What does, what does following a suffering saviour really mean? I hate pain. I hate suffering. Everything within me wants to go to comfort wherever possible. Am I in good company? And yet there are times when we're called to suffer for Jesus, because that is the right thing to do, and, and we're actually to know the fellowship of his sufferings, according to the Apostle Paul. So there are going to be times in our life that are just darn hard because we are the disciples of Jesus. And at that moment, we continue in our discipleship, even though we're suffering, because we're his disciples. Number three, you can't be his disciples if you value possessions more than people. He says here, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In other words, you, you hold on to your money and your possessions even though you'd be well able to meet the needs of other people. Here he's not saying that you, you have to give everything you have away. Because if we gave everything that we had away, we would then be in poverty, we'd be homeless. And, and that's not God's answer for life, right? Right? He doesn't want you to give everything away. He just wants to make sure that everything we have is at His disposal when He calls on it. That's why we did sleep at the G. A number of us slept there. Some of you sponsored and hopefully everybody prayed. Next year, could you please pray harder that it won't be the coldest night of the year? 
just saying. It got a little chilly in the middle of the night, Jimmy, didn't it? It was a little cool. But you know, there was 37 of us who did it this year. Last year, it was 20. Last year, we raised just over $30,000. This year, we raised over $56,000 for Melbourne City Mission and for their work in helping homeless young people in Melbourne. Uh, we will do what we can do. Amen. Every night, I go and pray for Trinity, our youngest, and, and on the other night was particularly cold and wet and windy. And so when we were praying together, we prayed for the homeless people in Melbourne. Uh, on, on cold, wet, uh, wintry nights, my heart just goes out. To, what must it be like on those nights to be sleeping outside? I would love to help all of them. I can't help all of them, but it doesn't mean I do nothing. And so uh, as a disciple, God calls on what we have um, to help those who are in need. And so are you a disciple? Have you taken that big step? Is Jesus Christ your Lord or is he just your savior? Does he have control of and access to everything that you are and all that you have? If the answer is yes, then you are a disciple. That's one of the things I love about First Fruits because it's, it's gutsy. It's, 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 um, it's tough. It's strong. It's not easy. It's like, my goodness, this is going to really, really hurt. Yes, it is meant to. It is a sacrifice. It's meant to cost something. And God bless those of you who are willing and able to, to be part of that. So far, the Frankston campus, we've been able to raise $13,680. And so a big thank you to everyone that's participated so far in First Fruits. I think it would be great to get to 20K because that will enable us to do everything that we want to hear and, and leave some over to do some other things. And we'd also love to be able to reduce the debt that we still have. I think it's about 175000 that's still owing from the fit out of this building. So that would be a wonderful thing to be able to do as well. And you know, there's testimonies that then flow out of First Fruits. And if you have a testimony, could you please send me an email with the testimony? I'd love to hear what God is doing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a financial kickback, although there might be. But what else is God doing in your life as a result of you making that step of discipleship in giving? Let me read this one to you. This came from a, a couple who are part of our Cheltenham campus. And he says, hey, Rob, wanted to um, share a first fruits, first fruits testimony from us. He texted this, by the way, so it's really a testimony. And he says, please feel free to share it anonymously with the congregation. So here it is. We had, some, we had not been in alignment about how much we were going to give right up until your prayer during the service. During that prayer, I felt a release, and my wife and I were aligned on how we were going to give. We decided to give our first week's income. After the service, I was informed that I had been released from a business debt that exceeded our first fruits gift. On top of this, we then received a financial gift from an extended family member for about half the amount again. The financial side of things was an absolute blessing, but the thing that I want to focus on is the massive shift in God's presence in our household. Prior to First Fruits, we had been experiencing disunity in our family and also our extended family. This has been broken in a powerful and tangible way. Thank you for being obedient to the call of the Holy Spirit and providing the opportunity to experience the blessing that it is to give. So isn't that wonderful? 
And, and I'm believing that for everyone that's participated. It's also wonderful to watch the process of discipleship in the life of Nicodemus. And uh, there's three steps we see in Scripture of Nicodemus getting closer and closer to Jesus. So let's touch on this before we wrap up. Step number one um, is what we looked at last time when Nicodemus came to Jesus, as recorded in John chapter 3. And verses 1 and 2, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night. Can you see in those words, he's just, it's like he's putting his toe into the water. It's like we are when we go and swim in the bay. Even when it's 40 degrees outside, it's still cold in the bay. And you go and you tip your foot in there, I'm really not sure about this. I'm still a little bit tentative. That's what he was like. He went to Jesus at night. He'd heard about him. There was something on, his, on the inside that was kind of resonating. I want to know about this guy. I want to know more about Jesus, but I'm also, I'm afraid of what other people might think. So I'm going to go at night. Hopefully no one will notice. No one will know. But he came and had that conversation with Jesus. That was step one. Step number two is when he defends Jesus before his fellow Pharisees. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees um, in the council, the Sanhedrin, are all having an argument about Jesus. They're all jealous about Jesus' success. And as part of that discussion in John 7, verses 50 to 53, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, so he's part of the Jewish council, he asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And so here Nicodemus is actually defending Jesus. These guys all wanted to kill Jesus, but Nicodemus is saying, now hang on a sec, the law requires that a person be heard before they're judged. What he's saying is right. All the others want to kill Jesus. What Nicodemus is saying is right. But look at the response of his friends. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And then they all went home. Isn't that fascinating? Look into it. Look into it, and you'll notice that a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. So they were judging Jesus on externals. Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee. He would have had a thick, rural, Galilean accent. Everybody knew, oh yeah, that's Jesus. He's from Galilee. Look into it, and you'll find that no prophet comes from Galilee. But if these guys had done their own words and looked into it, they would have found that Jesus was not from Nazareth in Galilee, but that he actually was from Bethlehem Ephrata, which was one of two Bethlehems, and the Bible picks which Bethlehem Jesus came from, and Jesus was from there. If they looked into it, they would have really known. Step three is after the crucifixion, and I find this magnificent. John chapter 19, verses 39 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And so even this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a disciple of Jesus, was still on a journey himself. He still had some more big steps to make. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, that's 34 kilograms of embalming spices and oil. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, 
This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they, Nicodemus and Joseph, laid Jesus there. Think about that entire act of love and how far Nicodemus had come. 34 kilograms of balm. Nicodemus would have been a very wealthy man to be able to afford that incredibly extravagant gift. It was actually the quantity of embalming oil and spices that was provided for a royal burial. A week earlier than this, there was a lady by the name of Mary who was, according to the Bible, a sinful woman, probably a prostitute who'd been touched by the grace of God through Jesus. And while Jesus was reclining at a meal, she came and wept over him, uh, wet his feet with her tears, dried his feet with her hair, and then broke open a jar of spikenard and poured it over Jesus, Jesus anointing Jesus for his burial. That, according to the Bible, was worth over a year's wages. But this gift, 34 kilograms of balm, was worth 100 times more. What an incredible amount of money. Over 100 years of wages to prepare Jesus for burial. And so look at these steps of discipleship in Nicodemus' life. Step one, Nicodemus was intrigued by Jesus. Step two, Nicodemus is supportive of and interested in Jesus' teachings. Step three, Nicodemus and Joseph act out their love for Jesus in preparing his body for burial. What happened to Nicodemus? Well, Jewish tradition refers to Nicodemus as being a disciple. According to this tradition, Nicodemus became a professed disciple of Jesus after the resurrection and was baptized by Peter and John. The Jews then stripped him of his office, beat him and drove him from Jerusalem and his kinsman Gamaliel, who uh, was Paul's rabbi and also became a disciple of Jesus, received and sheltered him in his country house till death and finally gave him an honourable burial near the body of Stephen, the first martyr. In other words, Nicodemus lost everything. All of his social status, probably most of his money, if not all of it. He lost it all, but he counted it worth it to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have a similar story. You heard a little bit of it a few weeks ago, of how I walked into a church as an, as an atheist and out as a believer who was born again. I'd like to say that from the age of 19, I kept going strong with Jesus, but I didn't. For the next couple of years, I walked away from Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until I was 21 that my best mate became a Christian, and it was as a result of his witness that I decided to rededicate my life to the Lord. You see, when I gave my life to Jesus at the age of 19, there were still some things I wanted to do. I kind of, I was happy to be a Christian, but also a bit disappointed. There were still things I wanted to do, sins that I hadn't tried, that I wanted to try, drugs that I hadn't smoked or dropped or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I really want to know what these things are like. And so I went through this two-year journey where I turned my back on truth and tried to look for truth, trying to find it in all sorts of ways, through drugs and alcohol and the occult and Eastern mysticism and you name it. But I realized that during that 
two-year period that it, the truth was only in Jesus Christ. And so as a 21-year-old, I took this big step. I decided I am going to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't want to just be part of the crowd. I want to be a disciple.